Amen. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me uh, to Habakkuk chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. We're in Habakkuk chapter 3 this morning, continuing uh, our series that we've called From Fear uh, to Faith. If you're visiting with us or just kind of starting to get connected to Rivercrest and what, and what we're doing here, um, it's, it's our normal practice. It's sort of our normal way of, of, of doing things to, to just work our way straight through books of the Bible. That's, that's, we, we figure that doing it this way helps us to hear from God in the context in which God originally spoke, all right, uh, the way he originally gave his word to us. And it helps me to rest in the hope that when my time here on earth is done, uh, I will be able to say what Paul said to the Ephesian elders, that when he said in Acts 20, that I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's our aim here as we work our way through the scriptures. It's a safeguard against our human tendency uh, to want our ears tickled, okay, to, uh, to hear what we want to hear. It's our way of submitting each week our thoughts and our desires before the Lord and taking Him at His word. That's why we do this. It's not because we're lazy or uncreative, although nobody's ever called me creative in my entire life. But still, we believe this is the faithful way to approach God's word. So would you stand with me? As we turn together to Habakkuk 3, stand with me and let's hear uh, the word of the Lord our God together. All of us together, you stand and you assume the exact same posture that I assume when reading the scripture, that we're all, we're all equal under the authority of God's word. This is Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 3. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction, and the curtains of the mid land of Midian did tremble. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us in, in Isaiah that, that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, you say, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Lord, we need you. We need you to speak to us today. We need you to work in our hearts. We need you to change us, to shape us, to mold us and fashion us that we might be walking beacons of the grace and the mercy that you show us in Christ. Lord, please send your spirit now. Move me aside. Don't let, my, don't let my weakness, don't let my stammering tongue, don't let, my, don't let anything in me stand between what you would say to your people this morning. And so I pray that you would come now and do that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things uh, that I did when I 
when I first uh, left the construction industry and went into ministry was I sent an email. I know this seems a little informal, but I sent an email to all the contractors. I sent it to all the distributors, the suppliers. I sent it to all of the customers that I had worked with for the last decade. And, and I, I sent it to them telling them what was happening. Uh, and the reason I did that was for a couple of reasons. Number one, I didn't want them to think there was any sort of like behind the scenes um, conflict or some sort of negative reason that I was leaving a, <clears throat> a successful family business. I also didn't want them to think I was crazy. Okay, I wanted them to know that I appreciated them, that I respected them, that I, uh, that I thought a lot of them, and I didn't want it to appear to just be disappearing into the shadows and, and out, of, out of the world. And it gave me an opportunity to share what God was doing in my life in that season with a bunch of people who ordinarily I wouldn't necessarily talk about talk about that with. So um, many of them responded, and, and I was really kind of blown away with that, but I'll never forget how one of them responded. It was a guy who we'd worked for for several years, and he thanked me for reaching out, and he told me how, how he too was a believer. This was the thing that kind of took me back. He told me that he was a believer, how he was a follower of Jesus Christ. He told me about his church and, and, and how he regretted that the two of us had not talked more together about our faith when we had so many opportunities. And he told me how he would be praying for me and, and the calling that God had placed on my life. And then at the very bottom of that email, uh, and I'd had probably a thousand emails from this guy over the last five years, he signed off with two words, two Latin words, uh, coram deo. Uh, if you don't speak Latin, I'll tell you what that means. It means before the face of God. It's the phrase that R.C. Sproul said captures the essence of the Christian life. Coram Deo. It means to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. That's what Coram Deo means. There's a lot packed into those two little words right there. And when I got that response email, I want to confess to you that I felt really guilty because I was the one going into full-time vocational ministry, and I was also the one who had to go and look up what in the world that meant. Um, and it's then that I realized it was much more than a tagline. It's more than just a way of signing off an email. To live Coram Deo is to live in the presence of God, is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting in the sight of God himself. You see, as we find Habakkuk here in this passage, if you can kind of put yourself there with him, he's, he's pausing. This is what he's doing at this point. He's pausing. He's reminding himself of this truth. Like so many of us, Habakkuk has struggled with doubt. He, he did not understand where God was in the midst of the crookedness, in the midst of the sinfulness of his own generation. He didn't understand how if God was a just God, if God was a holy God, then how could he allow this mess to go on? And so Habakkuk has some doubts. And then when he did hear from God, if you remember that back a few weeks ago, when he did hear from God, he did not like the response that God gave him. He didn't like what God had to say. He didn't like what God was up to. Again, like many of us, Habakkuk struggled to understand and then to submit to the plans and the purposes of God. He looks so much like me. The more I read this prophet, I realize more and more how much, well, I guess how much I resemble him and my struggles. He understood it, but he didn't like it. And so we ask this question as we walk in this life, 
as you and I walk in this life, as we encounter the peaks and the valleys, the good and the bad, all of the various paths that we might get turned around on, all the slips and all the stumbles along the way, all the doubts and confusion, what would it change if we truly saw and truly understood the absolute splendor of the Lord God Almighty? What would it change in our perspective? What would it change in our outlook on this moment and every other moment that we ever experience? These are the questions that this prayer calls to mind. Look back at verse 3 with me. We saw last week how Habakkuk came to the Lord in prayer. He came to God as his covenant Lord. He came to Yahweh, right? He came to him in a spirit of humility, and he asked for mercy. He came with this need, and he asked for mercy. And what we said is that this cry for mercy mercy ultimately points Habakkuk. He doesn't know it yet, but it's ultimately pointing him to Christ. It points to the mercy of God in Christ, whereby God makes a way for us to be reconciled and renewed in our relationship with our Creator. It's that Jesus is the door for us to enter in and that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. That's the undeniable truth of Christ. And here in verse 3, what we find Habakkuk doing is now he's looking back. He's presented the need before the Lord, and now he's looking back. As he's presented this need, as he's cried out for mercy, now he feels compelled to look back on the story of his people to find where God has proven himself merciful in the past. And so that's what he says here. He says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And, and I know that those aren't geographical areas that we are familiar with. I, I full, in fact, if you are one of those people who reads those and you actually go to the maps in your Bible, you won't even find those names on them unless they're like super updated and detailed maps. All that means essentially is that God came from the south. That when God entered in, he came from the south. He came from the land of Edom. Edom. And if you know anything about that, what that means is that when God came, he came from the last place that his people would have expected. And he came from that one place that no one would have been looking. If we're looking for God, we're looking this way, looking this way, and we're looking this way, and God comes from that way. If we know anything about God in our lives, I think we can relate to that. Sometimes he shows up in those ways that we just go, there's no way he would come from that direction. And so what he's doing here Specifically, what Habakkuk's doing here is he's, pack, he's, he's pointing us back to a moment in human history. He's pointing to a moment in Israel's story. He's pointing to uh, the Exodus. Okay, So we, we have that sentence, and, that, and then your Bible probably has a little subscript there, right? There's a little tiny word, probably in italics, that says Selah. It's the only other place outside of the Psalms where that word is used. And it basically is the prophet telling us after reading that sentence, that sentence where it talks about God coming from the south, what he tells us there is to effectively stop and think about that. That's what a Selah means. It's to pause. It's to stop and think, to reflect on it. So we should pause here for just a second to reflect on the incredible reality that the God of the universe, I don't want to oversell this, but I also don't want to undersell this, have you ever considered the reality that the God of the universe, the creator of everything, who stands above it, who stands beyond it, who stands outside of it, would actually come and dwell in it? That he would come to this place. Like, we've built a lot of Lego towns in my house. I've never moved into one. And that's about the idea you have of God coming and dwelling on earth, okay? It's that God, we need to understand this, that the author of history would actually appear and enter into history, I told the story before the first time that Laurie and I 
ever traveled up to New York uh, City. We were there for just a couple of nights, and we decided that it would make us um, really cool if we went and saw a Broadway show. Now, you need to know that I had never been to one of those and had no concept of what a Broadway show is. Zero. All right. All I knew is the tickets seemed like they were a little expensive. Okay. Uh, Laurie chose for us, she selected the musical called Hairspray. And instantly, in an instant, my plan for this to make me a cool New Yorker evaporated, right? Because I'm going to see a play called Hairspray. Uh, it, it definitely, my, my plan to be cool in New York definitely took a hit. But we went, all right, we, we did this, and we got to the Will Call uh, office there, uh, the window, and, and this, this sweet New York lady saw these two pitiful uh, young kids from South Carolina up there, uh, and, and she informed us that there was no record of our ticket purchase. So now not only had my plan to go see the play about hairspray uh, blown up in my face, I don't even have a ticket to prove that I'd had this terrible plan to begin with. But she had grace and mercy on us and, and to prove that New Yorkers have incredible hospitality, she essentially gave us tickets to the show. On the third row, uh, dead center. I, don't, I, didn't, I still, though you have to understand, I had no concept of what that meant. And so we, we go into the theater, we sit there, uh, and, and, and it was awesome, right? We got all into it. I was tapping my feet and everything. And just as intermission was ending, if you can imagine this, uh, Laurie pokes me in the ribs super hard. Okay, like one of those, like I've done something wrong or there's really something happening that I've missed. Um, and, uh, and so she pokes me and, and, that, and, and she just says to me, look who's sitting right behind you. And that was all the warning that she gave me. And so I turned around. If you've ever been in one of these theaters, you have about that much space between you and the person right behind you. So I turn around like an absolute goon and look uh, straight at this person who's looking back at me, and I recognize a face uh, that I've seen before. In fact, I've seen it many, many times before, and this face uh, just smiles and nods at me, and I, and, I, and I realize that I'm standing face-to-face with Tom Cruise, right? And so here's my chance, right? This is the moment to redeem all the lost coolness on this whole trip. It's like, I can be buddies with the biggest movie star on the planet. And Laurie is fully convinced that they're going to invite us out for cheesecake after this. I mean, she's, she, she knows we are about to be best friends with this guy. Um, and somehow I managed to just smile and nod back. I totally blew it. I couldn't do anything. I was frozen. I was just couldn't do anything. Um, I tried to summon every ounce of coolness that I had, and I realized I just ate a whole lot of it. Okay? Now, for the rest of the show, Laurie... It, it, would be a, it would be a lie to say she watched the rest of the show, okay? Uh, she had one eye on him and the other one at me waiting for me to initiate this conversation so that we could be best friends uh, and we could leave in his fancy car after the play instead of riding in the cab or whatever. And it reminded me of last week when Habakkuk said, I have heard the report of you. If you were here last week, you remember that. He said, I've heard the report of you. He said, I've heard of your fame. That's the idea. He said, I've heard all about this guy. I've seen him in movies. When I was a child, I wanted to be this guy. I wanted to fly jets, and I wanted to do missions that were impossible and, and whatever. And, I wanted to, I wanted, and now I'm sitting here face to face with him. He's like five foot four. And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I want to trade those inches. But anyway, um, Habakkuk knows the stories of God. He's seen the movies, right? And he's looking back on it going, yeah, yeah, you've proven yourself. 
And so at this point, he's looking back at that story. He's, he's replaying the story in his mind. And here's how Habakkuk describes that moment in history. He says this. He said, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. And then he says this. Look at verse four with me. He says, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Habakkuk is pointing his mind. He's directing his gaze back at Sinai and to this historic image of God moving and and leading his people. He's pointing back to the Exodus, and it reminds us that when God comes, I can't can't stress this one else, when God comes, he comes in splendor. He comes in splendor. And one of the things we need to remember about the Exodus is that while while Moses is the spokesman, it was God who had the power. God was the authority, and God was the one who led his people out. And so I know Moses is the man, and he gets a lot of credit, right? He's the one who, who, who led them in the Exodus. But we can't forget that while Moses is the one who said, let my people go, he didn't really know where they were going. The moment they left Egypt, he was lost, and that's when God showed up. And he showed up in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. God showed up to lead his people through the wilderness. It was his brightness. It was God's splendor pouring forth, his true glory that literally led the people in their wandering. And it was God, okay? It was Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the one who had promised to make a people, to redeem a people, and to preserve a people. He was the one who met with Moses on the mountain. He led Moses to the mountain. He led the people to the mountain. He called Moses up on the mountain. He met with Moses on the mountain. He gave Moses some tablets. You remember this scene? He goes up on the mountain. God gives him two tablets. They had some rules on them, 10 commandments, right? Moses, Moses takes those commandments. He comes down. Do you remember what happened next? He sees Aaron has made something else. He's made a golden calf. And so what does Moses do? You remember? He chunks down the tablets. I mean, it's just the most bizarre scene in the world. He chunks the tablets on the ground, breaks them. You can imagine God just going, are you serious, man? I just made those for you, and now you've broken them. So what does he have to do next? Yeah, go back up the mountain, right? So Moses goes back up the mountain, and what we're told there is that he, he met with God. God gave him some more tablets. Okay, so we see this story happening in real space and time. We actually see the faults in Moses as he throws down the tablets. We see this man who isn't God, but who is representing him. That's where God enters in the story. He's the one who shines so brightly. This is what it says in Exodus 34, that when Moses came down from the mountain, that Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So listen, the word used there to describe Moses is the same word that's used right here in Habakkuk. It's the only other place, it's the only place in all of of Scripture where that word is used, and it literally means that the face of Moses horned. Now you see why we translate that a different way. It means his face horned. It's the way they describe the rays flashing from his face as he had seen the glory of God and he radiated the glory of God. The way the Bible describes it is that he had horns of glory, horns of light coming off of his face. It's that Moses truly looked so different to them that they were afraid. And so we're told that when Moses had finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. He put a veil over it. Now, we know what a veil does. It covers him up. He covered it up because the reflected glory of God was too much for the people to handle. 
That's what the glory of God does. That's what the splendor of God does, that when you're in the presence of it, it so changes you that, that there are people who cannot stand to be around it. That's what happens when God comes around. He comes in splendor. He comes in glory. Palmer Robertson says he comes as an active person, powerfully and awesomely working to establish his supremacy among the nations. It's that he's the greater light. He said, whatever else there is that's shining, that he is greater, that he is brighter. It's that, it's that rays of unapproachable glory stream from his hand. That's what, that's what, uh, that's what Habakkuk's saying here about God, that he, that he radiates glory out of his fingertips, okay? It's that in himself and in his being, he is power. So he doesn't need weapons to establish his supremacy. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't need tanks. He doesn't need F-35s or whatever the best plane is we've got. When God comes, he comes in splendor. And you know what happens? The nations fall before him. And then Habakkuk continues. Look at verse 5. He says, before him went pestilence and plague follows at his heels. He's saying that when God comes, things happen. So not only does God come in splendor, not only does God enter into the world and 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 appear, but when he does, it changes some stuff. Things don't stay the same. That's because when God comes, he comes in justice. So now like Habakkuk, we remember, right? We have to look back and remember the signs that God performed through Moses. We remember those 10 plagues that that led to their release from, from the Egyptians. We need to remember the way that he demonstrated his power over creation, his dominion over, over the greatest earthly power of the day. You remember how he did that, by the way? You know, we think Sodom and Gomorrah. We think like, you know, sulfur and ash and fire just kind of falling from heaven. But well, if you remember what God sent to the Egyptians, he sent like frogs. And he sent flies. And he sent sickness. He sent pestilence, right? Plague at his heels. That's what Habakkuk is looking back on. He's going, man, God uses some really weird ways to do some incredible things. And then we remember how the Israelites marched into the promised land. Remember Joshua at Jericho. You remember the song, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? You remember that one? If you grew up in the church, you had to sing that one. I had to memorize it. It's still playing in my head right now. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, right? That's what happened. If you don't know that song, you're better for it. Remember that battle plan that God had given to them. God had told them. You remember the battle plan? This was God's grand plan for the armies of his people was to march around Jericho. That was it. Just take a long walk. Come back here, have dinner, we'll do it again the next day, right? You remember how that went? Six days they marched around Jericho. For six days they marched around. Then they'd come back and they'd have dinner and go to sleep, get up the next morning, march around again. For six days, that's what the battle plan of God was, to march around while carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which was basically a fancy box, right? It wasn't a nuclear bomb. It wasn't like, a, wasn't like a, an ancient hydrogen bomb or something. It was just a representation of God's presence with his people. God's battle plan for them was to march around and carry my promise in front of you. And so they did that. Did it for six days and nothing really happened. But on the seventh day, there was a change in the plan. On the seventh day, they marched around the city, what? Seven times. So don't just do it once. Go around it seven times. And when you get done, here's what you're supposed to do. You ready? Blow the trumpets. That's it. Blow the trumpets. 
And so they did that. They went and they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, they blew the trumpets, okay? Not rocket launchers. They didn't, they didn't shoot rocket launchers. They didn't even shoot uh, arrows at them. They didn't, shoot, they didn't have slingshots. They didn't have anything like that, okay? They weren't, they weren't catapulting dudes into the place. That wasn't it. They blew the trumpets, and then you know what they did next? They shouted. That was it. The battle plan of God's people against Jericho was the equivalent of a toddler's tantrum, okay? That's it. And what we're told in Joshua 6.20 is that as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. That's what happens when God shows up, man. When God shows up, he tears down walls. He breaks chains. He shows his power and his glory by overcoming that which is impossible to overcome. And we have to understand this because, you, you see, if God can do that, this is what Habakkuk is remembering, that if God can do that, what is there that he cannot do? What trivial wall is there that God cannot tear down? You see, rightly understanding the nature and the character of God reminds us that at best, everything the greatest builders in the world can put together are little more than Legos on the floor of the living room. I know it's an interesting picture here because what Habakkuk is doing is he's looking at the world, he's looking at the work of God through the lens of an honest, human, and limited perspective. You see, to me, if you look at this passage, you, you see mountains seem eternal <laughs> because they've always been there and because I can't imagine them moving. To me, the hills seem everlasting because I've been to the country roads of West, Virgi West Virginia and I've seen where where the best solution that the brightest engineers on the planet could come up with was to just cut a tunnel straight through the thing rather than go around it or wait for it to erode. That's what Habakkuk is working with here. He has seen the kingdoms of the earth. He's seen the way that they build and multiply and expand. He has stood on the foundation of the earth and felt how solid it is. He has had his feet on the rock. But like our friends in California and Las Vegas this week, he's also felt those mountains tremble. He's been reminded of how little, of how little power the world really has. He's been reminded of just how shaky the foundation of the earth can be. And so he's working from that limited perspective that we have while coming to terms with the eternal perspective of God. What he calls in the end there his everlasting ways. So it's not God who changes when he comes. It's us. And we see this nowhere more clearly than we see it at the cross of Jesus. You see, at the cross, we see the unexpected Savior dying for the undeserving sinner. We expect the great army to roll in just like the, just like the Hebrews expected. They wanted the guy on the white horse to lead a triumphant procession into Rome, into Jerusalem, into all the major cities, and to just ride over the Romans. That's what we want. That's what we still want today. We still want that to happen. We expect now the pillar of fire to come and to devour the wicked but if we know ourselves, like if I know my own heart, and if you know your own heart, if we know it at all, we expect that a righteous and holy God would roll right over us too. But God's ways are not our ways. And in his coming, he stood and measured the earth. This is what Habakkuk is talking about. That when Jesus came, he stood and measured the earth. 
When Jesus came, he demonstrated his power over creation, over nature and sickness and death. We've seen that. If you read through the Gospels, you see this over and over and over again. His appearing shook the nations as they conspired to put an end to him. And in that moment, when Jesus breathed his last, we're told in Matthew 27 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You remember that? It's a small detail there in Matthew. It said if God could tear down the walls of Jericho, surely he could tear down the dividing line between God and his people. And so he tore that curtain down. He tore down that dividing line between God and man, and the door that had separated us from God was open. And then we're told that the earth shook. This is is how Matthew records it. The earth shook and the rocks were split. You see how this all goes together? See, the Bible is not a bunch of stories. It's one big story. God telling one big story of how he plans to redeem and restore his people for his glory. And so Habakkuk doesn't even realize what he's saying and how right he is. That God works all things together. This is the story he's inviting you into. It's the story of God's love for his people, his faithfulness to his people, and his death to redeem his people. It's the splendor of God, the justice of God, and by his grace and mercy, it's the gospel of God for us. In Christ, we actually see the splendor of God at work. We see the splendor of God in power. We see the splendor of God in his holy sacrifice for us. As Jesus said, or as Paul said in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. That's what we see when Jesus comes. We actually see God. And when we truly see Jesus, we truly see God as our deliverer. We see him as our savior. And we recognize what Paul proclaimed, that if anyone is in Christ, what did we say to the kids? That if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. It's that in Christ, the impossible has been done. That in Christ, the impossible has been completed. The dead in sin have been raised to life in him. And so we go back to that original question of what would it change for us if we saw the absolute splendor of God, if we saw the absolute unavoidable splendor of God shining forth with horns and rays coming forth from him, what would it change if we saw that splendor of God? It would change everything. It would change everything. Because the first thing it changes is it changes us. Changes us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We pray that As we continue in worship here this morning, you would continue to speak to us through this sacrament that sits before us. We pray that you would continue to mold and shape and refine us. Lord, if it's fire that you need to refine us now, we pray that you'd send holy fire. That if it's it's because we're so thirsty that, that you would come and quench that thirst. If it's because we're so hungry, Lord, that you would come and fill us up. We pray that you would speak to us now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.